Thank you, Sabatino. Nice to see you all again. Um, I have been told that this series, four or so Tuesday nights here in May, is going to be on the subject of the first councils, the first ecumenical councils of the church, and the issues with which they dealt, and in particular, the philosophical background to understanding the issues with which they dealt. Sabatino expressed to me the ambition that all of you should be up to par on certain key philosophical ideas so that when those ideas become employed in theology, you know what they are and what they amount to and how they can apply and so on. Now, I want to say a very general statement about philosophy. And it is this. Becoming competent in philosophy is not mainly a matter of learning facts. Not even facts about who said what when, like Plato said, Aristotle said, no. Becoming wise in philosophy is mainly a matter of learning distinctions. All right? And if I had to say what was the most precious cultural inheritance, inheritance of any civilization, I would say it is the inheritance of distinctions. Where you don't have distinctions drawn, there is major confusion and disaster. When I was here last time talking about Islam, Think of the magnitude of the mess caused by the lack of a distinction between church and state in Islam. Well, mosque and state. Between religious body and social polity. No distinction drawn. Without these distinctions, things are a disaster. Well, I'm going to begin tonight with an enormously basic distinction, which I hope all of you will find access and easy understanding. Okay, that one looks like it's been chewed by a mouse. Let's try another one. Let's try green. Yeah, that looks good. All right. My first philosophical distinction is between the thing we are talking about and how we describe it. Um, so as to get true descriptions. All right, the thing we are talking about versus how we describe it. This is perfectly obvious. So I suppose I'm talking about this thing, okay? And I describe it as black. Okay? I describe it as largely made of paper. Okay? Suppose I'm talking about this thing. Oh. Ah. And I describe it as wooden, four-legged, etc. Does everybody see the distinction between the thing I'm talking about and how I describe it? All right. How we describe it in turn subdivides. So here comes distinction number two. This in turn subdivides into descriptions which say what the thing is, what it is, versus descriptions which say how it is. Okay. 
Now, if I hold up this thing and I say it's black, that's an accurate description of how it is, but you would not find it very helpful as a description of what it is. You would want to know if I'm holding up uh, a paperweight, um, a um, copy of a novel, or what this in fact is, a Bible. <laughs> the last description tells you what it is. <clears throat> All right? I'm holding up this thing now. Okay? And let's say, all right, tonight I'll be an optimist. I'll describe it as half full. Okay. Transparent. All right. All of them. Don't I wish. Now, all of those descriptions are very interesting, but none of them as yet says what it is. I just had a terrific suggestion over here as to what it might be, but in fact, what it is is what? Well, in a plastic cup. All right? Vodka sounds better. All right. This distinction between what it is and how it is is famous in the history of philosophy. It's famous because what it is equals the substance of the thing, at least in one good meaning of the word substance, and how it is expresses what the ancients called accidents of the thing. Substance of the thing versus accidents of the thing. <laughs> The crucial difference between a substantial description that says what it is and an accidental description which merely says how it is, is that the thing can change how it is and still go on existing. See this? I could throw this into a vat of green dye in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I suppose. I could throw this into a vat of green dye. <clears throat> its color would be changed. How it is would be quite different. But it would still be what it is. A Bible. All right, a soggy Bible. But it would still be a Bible, yes? This object. Ah! Pick it up again, why not? <laughs> could certainly be painted white, could be reupholstered, could sustain a bit of damage, a few scratches here and there, yes? And in all those respects be different from how it is now, and yet it would still be a chair. However, and here I come to a very interesting point, because this is where we disagree with Hindus. Nothing, nothing can change what it is and still be the thing we're talking about. Nothing can change what it is and still exist. All right? Suppose, um, well, why not? Suppose St. John the Baptist were to join us tonight and take pity on me, okay? And imitate a miracle of our Lord and change the content of this glass into vodka. Mm -hmm. Very good. The water wouldn't exist anymore. The thing I'm now talking about wouldn't exist anymore. Yes? This chair, I'm not picking it up again. <laughs> But it could be dropped into a vat of acid. Yes? It could be dissolved. And the result would be the thing itself wouldn't be what it was anymore, but it also wouldn't exist anymore. Are you with me? Okay. 
I myself could step upon a landmine. The result of that would be um, a separation of my various particles into uh, many different directions. Hmm? Blown to smithereens, as we say. There wouldn't be any me anymore. Okay? The thing I'm pointing to and now talking about, I would cease to exist. Isn't that right? Okay. Oh, yeah. You're thinking of my soul. Yeah. That's not me. That's a part of me. Okay. That would survive, but nothing else. Okay. Right. All right? So nothing changes what it is without going out of existence. You can't trace one and the same thing through a change of what it is. Now, this is where the Hindus disagree with us. Okay? They think that I, for example, by behaving badly in this life, might come back as a rat. <laughs> One and the same self would have been now a human being, now a rat. Now, what a human being is, is not what a rat is. You see the idea of the self perduring through a change of what it is. That's the reincarnation idea. Right? And it's a very strange idea. Even Hindus do not really pretend to be able to trace an individual through this process. For example, they don't know whether the cow grazing over there in the field is really their great-grandfather or somebody else. <laughs> they can't trace the individual through such a change any more than we can. But they believe in such a change and we don't. Everybody clear with me so far? Right. All right. I must admit I've never heard of that. Unless what? I said I must admit I've never heard that, what you just said. Oh, okay. Well, it's true. <laughs> now then, I want to um, open up a uh, famous passage in the New Testament that brings <clears throat> the uh, distinctions that we have on the board, the true distinctions, into focus. This is from the second chapter of Philippians. Beginning with verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, fought it not robbery to be servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth. You know this passage. You've all heard it. Okay. Let me bring out several features of this passage. First of all, it's talking about one and the same thing. And tracing that one and the same thing through three stages. First, this one was in the form of God. Then, took on the form of a servant and became obedient unto death. And then was highly exalted and given a name above every name. It's easy to see that we have here a reference to the pre-existence of Christ, his period of earthly humiliation, and his time of post-resurrectional glory. One and the same individual 
thing we are talking about goes through these different <coughs> stages. And in these different stages fits different descriptions. Okay. Fits different descriptions. And the most fundamental descriptions for these stages are number one, in form of God. And the other one, in form of servant. Which St. Paul explains in the next verse as the human form. Now, the word for this in Greek is morphe. And morphe as a word for form did not mean what you and I would usually mean by the word form. If we see the word form, we usually think shape. Okay? It, morphe didn't mean shape. It meant nature. It meant an inner form. It meant a substantial nature. If I say that somebody is in the form of God, I'm saying he has the divine nature. And saying that something or somebody has the divine nature is saying what it is. Yes? That's a substantial description. That's what it is. And then if I say somebody takes on the form of man and is found in, as a human being, that also is saying what this item, this individual I'm talking about, is what it is. Please notice then that as we go through these three stages, our Lord has or verifies two different substantial descriptions. Two different substantial descriptions. Now this right away brings up a problem. Contents of this glass again. Can it be at once vodka and water? No. It can meet one of those substantial descriptions or else the other, but it can't meet both. Is that right? Okay. Clearly then, what this passage is describing is a very mysterious case. Okay. Something has the form of God, doesn't cling to all the glory that goes with that, but takes on the form of a servant, namely the human form. As such, undergoes death and in reward is resurrected, glorified, given the name above every name. Yes? How do these two substantial forms relate to one another in Christ? How do they relate to one another in Christ? Now, if the gospel were a German fairy tale, it would be easy to answer that question. Oh, two forms? No problem. It's like the prince who was by a wicked witch turned into a frog. He had the form of the prince, but he didn't cling to that. Now, now, he was turned into a frog. And now he awaits the princess, who will not disdain to kiss the frog. The kiss will restore, restore him to the form of a prince. Does everyone see? German fairy tale. Notice how in the German fairy tale, one and the same thing survives a change of substantial form. It goes from being a human being to being a frog and back to being a human being without ever having lost its personal identity. You all see that? Now who would think the German fairy tales were subliminally Hindu? But that's exactly what it is. <laughs> the Frog Prince is a Hindu story. And the Gospel is not a German fairy tale. 
It does not mean to say that our Lord used to be God. Then a funny thing happened. He gave that up. Turned himself into a human being. Alright? And after having suffered enough, was whoop, transformed back into being God. Okay. No such thing is possible. No such thing is believable in philosophy. No such thing is in the gospel. So what can this remarkable passage mean by saying that our Lord had both of these forms, the form of God and the form of servant? Now, if we had... You don't want me to go through a lot of Greek here, do you? No. But if we had time and all that deal, I put the thing up in Greek, I would show you the tenses of the participles and explain to you what it's saying. It's saying that while remaining in the form of God, he didn't cling to that glory, but put on the form of a servant. Yes. He certainly never relinquishes the form of God. All right, then we have a problem. A very mysterious case. Where one and the same thing we are talking about has two substantial forms, two answers to what it is. Does everybody see? Now, in later vocabulary, what we are talking about in Christ's case is going to become the person. Okay? And the substantial forms are natures, and we're going to be able to say that one and the same person came to possess two natures. Originally, he has the divine nature. He then adds to that, puts on over that, the human nature. By the way, notice, the passage does not say that he sloughed off the servant form again. He took it to heaven with him. He was glorified in the resurrection of his body. He, sit, he sits at the right hand of God with his resurrected body. He keeps the human form. So and from all, for all the rest of eternity, our Lord is in two forms. Two more five in the Greek. Alright? Now, I especially like this passage because St. Paul didn't write it. Well, it's in the epistle to the Philippians, isn't it? Yeah. What do you mean St. Paul didn't write it? Are you one of those higher critic guys who are going to tell us that St. Paul didn't write any of his letters? No. I'm not one of those guys at all. What I'm going to tell you is that the passage we just read is translation Greek. Okay? Again, if we've had time to go through the whole text, we can show this in detail. It's translation Greek. St. Paul is here translating a pre-existing hymn. And what language was it translated from? Aramaic. This, is a, this, was, a, this was an Aramaic hymn. Okay. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God to be held, emptied himself, took the form of servant, and so on and so on. That was an Aramaic hymn. Which means it was written in Palestine. And Philippians was written around the year, what, 60? Yeah? And this Palestinian hymn could have been written in the late 30s, in the early 40s. We're talking about a Christological statement that arises out of the original Semitic culture of the Gospel. We're not looking at Greek speculation here. We're not looking at some synthesis between the Gospel and Aristotle. You notice, I didn't have to say one thing about Aristotle tonight. All I had to do was put out a basic distinction, the thing we're talking about versus how we describe it, and then two different ways or levels on which we describe things. The basic level of what they are, and then the more superficial level of how they are here and now. So, yes, I didn't need any Aristotle to get into that. You don't need any philosophy to get into these things. It's basic language available in every culture. And here we see these distinctions being put to work. 
in an Aramaic hymn, probably from the late 30s, early 40s of the first century AD. Our Lord is the thing talked about. He is described in two different ways as to what he is now. Of these two descriptions as to what he is, one of them was awfully easy. If you looked at Jesus walking around Palestine and you asked, what is he? Everybody would say, what do you mean, what is he? He's a man. But the early church had a serious problem about the other thing. That he is. The other what. The human what was easy. What to say about this other what? Now look, ordinary human beings don't pre-exist in the form of God and then take on human nature and then get glorified, do they? All right. Ordinary human beings begin to exist when they acquire their human nature. But the thing we're talking about in this ancient hymn didn't begin to exist when it, he, acquired human nature. It, he, was already there in the form of God which is to say, in the divine nature. All right, now we have a problem. And it is a huge problem. And it is a problem that Christianity had to get over before it could be preached in Damascus, before it could be preached in Antioch, before it could be preached anywhere outside of Jerusalem. It had a fundamental problem it had to get over. How do you reconcile calling this one, whom we're talking about in Philippians 2, how do you reconcile calling this person divine in nature with the fact that there is one and only one God? You all know that if there was any point at all about which the Jews were zealous, <coughs> proud, their identity among the peoples. It was that they were monotheists. All the surrounding nations had many gods. No problem about several things in divine nature. What's the problem? But for the Jews, there can be only one in divine nature, right? Only one God. And well, look. I'm looking at Philippians again. And it's perfectly clear that the one who was in the form of God and took on the form of a servant is different from the one talked about in verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. It does not say that the one and only God and then highly exalted himself and gave himself a name above every name. Does it say? No. The God who rewards, exalts, and the God who took on the human form would seem to be two. Now, you cannot preach in Judaism, two gods. <laughs> so immediately, the church had a problem. If it was going to sing hymns like this, it had a problem. And it seemed bound to sing hymns like this because it was clear from the very beginning of his ministry that Jesus was not adequately described by the description, that's a man. It just wasn't adequate. Okay. 
just a man cannot forgive sins, but he did. That's a divine prerogative. Just a man cannot perform these miracles, but he did. He's up on the mountain with his disciples at one point. Okay? And um, it's as though um, the, the servant form, the human nature, slips like a suit of clothing. It slips. And this brilliance emerges from within. I'm talking about the transfiguration. And the disciples were up there, had, who were up there with him, had a glimpse of what mysterious underlying reality was there alongside or underneath the human nature. It was glorious. He was transfigured before their eyes. He was brighter than any fuller can whiten things. What do you call that entity? that came into view momentarily. And then, and then it was covered over by the human form. What do you call that? Well, clearly it had to be called divine. And he himself said things that could only be true of God. I don't even have to go into John's Gospel, which some people say was written later, blah, blah, blah to find statements in which Jesus says things about himself which could only be true of God. I don't have to go there at all. You know how the critics like to play games with gospel sources and so on? The Q document, which is supposed to be a collection of Jesus' sayings, originally in Aramaic and so on. I got a statement for you that must have been in Q because it's both in Matthew and in Luke. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, No one knows the Father but the Son. And no one knows the Son but the Father. In fact, it starts that way. No one knows the Son, that's me, but the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son reveals him. He's saying he's in a unique position to know God the Father. Who else could know God the Father but a divine entity? Since God transcends all created knowledge. And how could he say, no one knows me except God the Father? Without saying there is this abyss of mystery to my person so deep that only God knows it to the bottom. That's what he's saying. I can go around saying things like that. If I said, nobody knows me but God the Father, my wife would laugh herself. <laughs> My children would have an even bigger yuck fest. <laughs> no, 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 no. We can't go around saying things like that. Matthew eleven twenty seven. It's called the John-like saying, the Johannine Logian. It's in the Synoptic Gospels. It sounds like John. Nobody, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. Yes, that's John one twelve, isn't it? Well, it's around verse twelve. You see the, the similar? So he's, he claimed unique cognitive status. Oh, yeah. And then um, there was the time when he was um, um, up in the last, on his last visit to Jerusalem. And it was parable telling time again. And he really hacked off the Jews by telling them the parable of the wicked vineyard keepers. You know all about them? Oh, yeah. The, 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 the owner of the vineyard hires out the vineyard to these keepers, goes away, and then it's time to get the fruits of the vineyard. What does he do? He sends his servants. That's the prophets. Okay. Then they be throw out. 
had that happens a couple of times, and the owner of the vineyard says, well, I still have my son with, them, with me. I'll send them my son. They'll respect my son. And the vineyard keepers kill the son. Yes, hey, now the vineyard will be ours. What do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? Yes. He's distinguishing himself from all the prophets. He's calling himself the son in relation to the one who is the owner, the father, the founder of Israel. All right. Well, now it's impossible, it would seem, for the God of Israel. You can't find a Bible passage, really, in which the God of Israel says, I have a son, can you? In so many words. But there is an interesting place to which the first apostles turned to, um, to understand what to say about this one who isn't God the Father, but who was in the form of God and took on the form of man. How, what to say about him and how to reconcile that with monotheism. There is a place to which the apostles could turn. And it is in the book of Proverbs. Okay. I want to read to you from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 30. Proverbs 8, verses 22 to 30. Now listen to this. This is wisdom speaking. Wisdom has been speaking for most of the chapters so far. We're starting in verse 22. And here is what wisdom goes on to say. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, I was by him. That means alongside him. I have read that in the liturgy of the hours. Yeah. <clears throat> As one brought up, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. This is wisdom speaking. This is divine wisdom speaking. Okay. I was by him as he did these things. In other words, God is represented here as creating everything with the accompaniment, shall we say, of a companion. Wisdom is being personified here as a companion of God. One with whom God works to bring forth the depths and establish the mountains and set a bound to the seas and all those works of creation. And this wisdom was there before creation. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, before ever the earth was. He possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. This is pre-creation. There is a wisdom of God personified here as a companion of God. Now, what if this passage in Proverbs is not 
just a poetical personification. What if it is a subtle revolution of a number who is with God from the beginning? Now, would this other be divine in substance, divine in form? Ask yourself this. If a thing is not of a divine form or substance, but it exists at all, has it been created? Yes. Now, sure. Okay. So we got a clear alternative here. Either this companion is divine in nature or else it was created. Right? Now ask yourself this. Can God have created the wisdom with which he made the worlds? Can God have created the wisdom with which he made the worlds? Okay. Ask yourself that question. If God could create his wisdom, then there was a time, so to speak, before God had any wisdom. What was he then, a fool? <laughs> How did he blunder into creating wisdom if he didn't have it already? See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The idea that this wisdom could be created vanishes at the slightest touch. It's absurd. Okay. Now, reflection on the wisdom of God became a key feature of Jewish thought even before New Testament times. I just read to you from the book of Proverbs, for heaven's sake. That was written long before the Incarnation, right? Right. Now, let's come down to a book a little bit closer in time to our Lord. It's the book of Wisdom. Okay. One has to pity um, Protestant outfits that don't have this book in their canon because it's an extremely precious document. And I'm in chapter 7, let's see, and I'm in verse 25. Talking about wisdom again. God's wisdom. And here's what it says. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 20. I'll start at verse... Oh, good heavens. I'll start at verse 22. Wisdom, which is the worker of all things, taught me, for in her is an understanding spirit, holy, one only, manifold, subtle, lively, clear, undefiled, plain, not subject to hurt, loving the thing that is good, quick, which cannot be leaded, ready to do good. Leaded can't be uh, impeded. Ready to do good, kind to man, steadfast, sure, free from care, having all power, overseeing all things, going through all understanding, pure and most subtle spirits. For wisdom is more moving than any motion. It passeth and goeth through all things by pureness. It is the breath of the power of God and a pure influence flowing from the glory of the Almighty, dot, dot, dot. Wisdom is the brightness of the everlasting light, the unspotted mirror of the power of God, and the image of His substance. Does everybody see? This is a philosophical meditation on wisdom, on divine wisdom giving it these marvelous descriptions. All-powerful, all-surveying, all-penetrating, faster than any motion. The wisdom also referred to the Holy Spirit. Uh, later on, some of these passages, passages will be applied to the Holy Spirit. But in the beginning, they're applied to our Lord. And you can see what power would come from this book passage in the Book of Wisdom. As a matter of fact, you can see it quoted if you will turn over to the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verse Hubhub. Is it verse 2 or verse 3? 
Don't quote me on it until I look it up. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 1. Yeah, I want verse 3. But we'll start at verse 1. God, who at sundry times and diverse matters spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, okay, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. He made the worlds by his Son. Proverbs 8 told us he made the worlds through his wisdom, right? Listen to this. This Son, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, there it is. Language straight from chapter 7 of the Book of Wisdom. The brightness of his glory and the image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, etc., etc. Okay. The first, the oldest descriptions that we have in Christian literature of our Lord are borrowed from the Old Testament's account of wisdom. That's how they could account for another alongside God the Father, but not another God. Okay. Not another Father, not another God, but the wisdom of God. The wisdom by which or through which God made all things. Well, you don't have to go very far. You have to go beyond 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. To find it said, Christ, comma, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There it is. St. Paul tells you who he is. He's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, when I was a stripling youth, not yet worthy of a gray beard or any such accoutrements of dignity, I thought that all that passage meant was that God had done a mighty smart thing to send Jesus. That's <laughs> not what it means. It means this one who took on the form of man is the everlasting wisdom of God through which God made all things. That's why St. Paul says, God the Father from whom are all things and the Lord Jesus through whom are all things. The one through whom all things were made. The wisdom through which God acted. Yes? Okay. Now... One more connection to make, and then I'm ready to move on. Okay? If you take the Greek word logos, which is found in the beginning of St. John's Gospel, and you ask what it means, okay? and you say word, I'm not going to be happy. It's not a very helpful translation. Exactly. And the Greek word for that kind of word is rhema. R H E M A. Rhema. Logos. R H E M A. Rhema. I once passed a sign for a Baptist church called Rhema Baptist Church. Rhema. R H E M A. Baptist. I wonder if they knew what they were doing. But anyway. Logos doesn't mean word in that sense. Logos means an account, an explanation. Okay? It means the reason behind something. Aristotle uses the word logos to mean the scientific definition or account of something. Like the logos of water is H2O. Still waiting for the vodka to happen. H2O is the scientific account of water. All right? The account is the wisdom that is found in things, that organizes things, that structures things, that puts things into their kind. The wisdom behind things. The wisdom you get to when you have been able to explain things. That's a loss. 
And so another way to translate the word wisdom, tekma in Hebrew, is loss. And that's what St. John is doing in the beginning of his gospel. All right. So we have overcome, well, we hope we've overcome, we've begun at least to overcome a very serious problem that has to be solved in order to get Christianity off the ground. We have to be able to say that Jesus Christ is in the form of God, but is not God the Father. The, the everlasting wisdom through which the Father acts and creates provides an answer to that question, who is this Jesus? In his other whatness. In the one what he is, he's man. In the other one, he's this wisdom of God. He's this word, this logos. Does everybody see? Okay. I'm a long way yet from the Council of Nicaea. I was supposed to get up to Nicaea tonight. We have a grand total of five minutes left before I'm supposed to turn into a pumpkin and you get to go home. Okay. We're not going to get to Nicaea tonight. But we're on the way. Okay. Because Nicaea is a further discussion of the second what he is of Christ. Okay? And it will overcome a very important early heresy. But um, before we get to that early heresy and to conclude things, so I'll talk about Nicaea next week. What's the harm? Before we get to anywhere near the early heresy that uh, Nicaea addressed, I need to talk to you about um, about another one. Um, another early mistake. Uh, not so bad a heresy, but still a mistake that uh, came from the effort to look at this mystery we're talking about here with the help of philosophical tools. Now, if I talk about the what as substantial form, and the how it is, as accidents of the thing, that vocabulary is philosophical tools. Alright? If I talk about the thing we're talking about versus how we describe it, I'm talking about the person or first substance as opposed to properties it may have, including substantial form. These are philosophical tools. Let's not get any deeper into those tools until we have looked at a very interesting incident. Okay. St. John did call our Lord the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. It was with God, same preposition as in Proverbs 8, by, with God. And it was God, yes. And, and all things were made by this Logos, same as in Proverbs 8. Right? And without him was not anything made that was made. And now you see why the Logos was the light of men? Because it's the eternal wisdom that enlightens every man who comes into the world. Oh, it's all connects. All right. St. John described him as uh, the Logos. Okay. And immediately, uh, speculation began in what sense can this one who became human be a logos which is something like a word or an account or an explanation how can he be anything like that and um, this time help was found from stoic philosophy the stoics were very interested in language and in their study of language they drew an interesting distinction uh -huh. One more. I told you philosophy was learning distinctions. Okay. Their distinction, okay, was between two uses of the talk of a word. Okay. There's the spoken or pronounced 
about that. Pronounced word, the outwardly expressed word, logos proforikos, the word which is brought forward when you utter it. And on the other hand, there is the word which remains in your mind. Okay. The mental word. Mental word. Okay. There were a few very, very dumb heretics who thought that the one who had become flesh in Jesus of Nazareth was originally a spoken word. God created the world by a speech act, right? In the beginning, God said, and through his speaking, everything came to be. Hello. There's the logos. As I said, this is a very dumb sort of heretic. Very few people took that seriously. But what if we look at the mental word? Okay. Now you would think, after all, that wisdom would be in the mind of the wise individual, wouldn't you? Divine wisdom is going to be in the mind of God, isn't it? And that divine wisdom is going to be like a divine understanding. I'm going to give you a fancy word, concept. It's like the concept through which God understands things. If God understands things through his wisdom, he understands things through his concept of them, yes? Especially he understands everything through his concept of himself. Now this is going to get very interesting. the word of God or the wisdom of God doesn't count as a separate individual cut off from God like you know one God over here and one God over there how come well think of this can you think of an example of where you emit or produce something without losing anything? Can you think of an example of where you produce, you emit, you generate, but with absolutely no loss to yourself? It's the mental work. If I communicate a thought to you, do I lose my thought? Absolutely not. Thought is communicated without being lost. Yes. The mental word remains forever in the mind of God the Father. Okay? God conceives that word as you conceive a concept in your mind. The word arises from him, but he doesn't lose anything. So there's no separation. The birth of the Son of God isn't like a splitting off. God's not like one of those flatworms. You cut it. Not like that at all. Doesn't split. Doesn't multiply exactly. Doesn't split. And yet one comes forth from the Father. The wisdom of God comes forth from God as the mental word comes forth from the mind conceiving it and the mind conceiving it doesn't lose it. Does everybody see? This is going to be powerful in the history of thought about our Lord. It's going to be very powerful. And, um, and uh, I'm going to give you one final thing to think about tonight. That's not a misconception. The misconception was thinking about the spoken pronounced word. Yeah. Um, one final thing about that. What if you... I want you to think away. Think away your body. Okay? Suppose you're nothing but a mind. 
Well, it's a thought experiment. Think of yourself for a moment as being nothing but a mind. You're a total spirit. You are a mind. All right, now, I want you to think of understanding yourself. What is a mind? It is a power to understand. Yes? Now, I want you to think of a mind understanding itself. Okay? Now, if, let me ask you this. If you succeed in understanding yourself, does the concept you acquire of yourself match yourself or not? If you're God, yes. Well, it would match if it was a good understanding, wouldn't it? The better the concept, the better the match. So if it's perfect, it's the same. Huh? Yeah. So if God is a pure mind, eternally understanding himself, and in that eternal understanding, he forms a concept of himself, that concept or mental word or logos is a perfect image of himself. A perfect replica of himself. Does everybody see? Which is why St. Paul says in Colossians 1.18, Christ, the image of the invisible God. And why Hebrew says, the express image of his substance or person. You're bursting. Aren't you reducing then the spirit to a concept? Because you're saying that if you have a perfect concept, then it's equal to the spirit. When we take a philosophical idea, like a mental word, mental thought, concept formation, and apply it to God, we always know that we're stretching beyond our own experience. All we have, we're going to lose something in anything we say to God. That's why we talk about analogy. All right? Our and our images, our words, our discussion is never going to exhaust the divine reality. All it has to do is take us a couple of steps towards understanding. All right? From wisdom of God to logos of God to image and perfect replica of God. All right? And if I had somebody who was my image and perfect replica, it would be my son, wouldn't it? Chip off the old block. Spitting image. Yes. So from wisdom to mental word, logos, image to son. It all ties together. And every idea I have been giving you tonight was developed before the year 150. Because that's when we have Justin Martyr's first apology. Okay? And I can quote you, you know, from Justin Martyr's first apology, these very ideas about the inner word and song. Yes, ma'am? Um, can I please make a comment? Sure. You made the comment about uh, communicating the thought. Mm -hmm. And this may not have anything at all to do with what you're trying to say, but yet in my mind it does. Okay. Because all this time that you're going through all this, I'm looking at this as a mother. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what Mary, when this was all going on, as a mother, what she was thinking, what she had in her mind, and how she felt. Mm -hmm. And I just... Yeah. Yes. Well, Our Lady heard from the angel some arresting descriptions of the child who was to be born from her. It wasn't just going to be a miraculous conception. She heard more than that. She heard a description that this one is going to be called Holy and the Son of the Most High. And he will sit upon the throne of his father David forever. And insofar as he's called the Son of the Most High, and Our Lady is a monotheist, 
she has to be thinking, okay, that her son is somehow going to be her God. And that is going to put her into an utterly unique position as a mother. We criticize every other mother who adores her child. You idolize that kid. You must love God more than, you know, son and daughter and so on. But you can't criticize her for that. No mistake at all. All right, thank you very much. God willing, I'll see you next week.